Those of us who are black and brown and grew up in the United States, we are very familiar with European history, you know? We understand that white lives matter. And, you know, to comment on the fact that all lives matter, yes, that's something that is very factual. Um, all lives do matter, but the current discussion is about black and brown lives mattering. Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick. I'm Tenoch Estacatl. And this is Salute Talks. From small towns to large metroplexes, people are speaking out about systemic racism and the injustices that come as a result. At every level of government, civic leaders are having to relook the prejudice policies that directly harm their constituents. The most significant part of the problem is now being discussed more than ever, white privilege. In many white communities, silence on the topic of racism and the actual systemic reality of it has been the biggest reason for its perpetuation, even decades after the civil rights movement. Today, Dr. Rogelio Sainz, a professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio, joins us to discuss the roots of this issue and how it permeates in modern society, as well as what we all can do to address this problem. Dr. Sainz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah. We're glad that you're here. So um, this is uh, a conversation that Aztec and I have been talking a lot about. Um, it's something that's close to my heart um, as being someone who grew up in a privileged white community, um, being white myself. And so I just wanted to ask you, based on your research and understanding of racial bias and racial issues, can you talk a little bit about the history of white privilege in America, um, kind of like where it started, the roots of this issue? Yeah, so we can talk about uh, white privilege as something that is unearned uh, privilege or right that people have on the basis of their race, the color of their skin, and so forth, in particular white skin. Uh, and we can talk about then the historical overview of the, the United States, where we see the uh, European immigrants coming to, to the United States. Many people say, oh, no, the, the, this is a white country and so forth, but it wasn't a white country. This was one where you had the indigenous population here for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh, and then the whites get here and they, uh, they displace them, they murder them, they uh, uh, take their land away from them uh, and so forth. Then uh, they also bring um, Africans also enslave them and so forth. So you see the beginning of the power that, uh, that whites uh, uh, accumulate at, at, the, at that particular point in time. And there's where you begin seeing the, the notion of white privilege and um, the way that whites justified what they were doing to the indigenous population, where they were doing to slaves and so forth, was that uh, that uh, um, their know-how there uh, was needed and, and so forth to be able to develop this country and, and so forth. So it justified uh, the fact that you had the killing of, uh, of uh, Native Americans. So you have uh, then as, as uh, whites immigrated to to, uh, to the to the United States or what was the uh, to become the, the United States and then you have the uh, the um, displacement of uh, Native Americans the indigenous population um, the killing the genocides and so forth that uh, that uh, that took place uh, and then you have the enslavement of Africans who were brought in as well and whites were justifying this by saying no, this is uh, the way that uh, land had to be developed. Uh, um, uh, these were with the uh, Native Americans. These were heathens. Um, with uh, with uh, 
uh, Africans, that they were not uh, as intelligent and white and so forth. So a lot of the races uh, kind of ideology and so forth that is, uh, that is used to justify the superior uh, position that whites were establishing for themselves. And everybody else, including people of color, including women and so forth, were to uh, occupy second, third, uh, third uh, uh, citizen uh, um, kinds of uh, uh, positions in, in, uh, in, the, in this country. Um, and then we have, uh, so that's very much at the uh, roots of it, where you see the, the white privilege that has emerged at that particular point in time. And you know that once people have that power, it becomes extremely difficult to take that power away uh, because they, uh, people will do anything in their power to keep that, uh, that uh, power. And we've seen it through the centuries. Uh, and whenever there has been a little bit of a gain that has taken place, uh, there have been the backlash. Uh, one of the latest was, of course, uh, the civil rights legislation uh, in the 1960s. And uh, whites um, did everything in their power to uh, make sure that uh, they continued having political power, economic power, uh, educational access, and so forth. So you begin seeing a lot of the, um, uh, the sh shuffling that was done uh, to try to uh, do away with many of those uh, of those uh, court case uh, rulings. In the case of education, uh, there was so much so much that uh, that whites did to delay uh, desegregation. And finally, when desegregation came about, you had whites then moving towards suburban areas, going out into the exurbs and so forth, uh, where they reestablished their their white communities and so forth. And then we began seeing a lot of the the policies. Uh, that did away with desegregation, did away with a lot of the uh, civil rights legislations and so forth. And then you create in the in the world of education, you have public schools that are today more segregated than they were uh, right before the, the Brown decision and the, the civil rights uh, uh, legislation. In consideration with some of the points you were making earlier, especially the sorts of power structures that were created in the United States, um, it, at least in my life, when I'm talking with my white peers, whether it's, you know, older folks, folks my age, something that I hear a lot is a sort of justification in the sense that, well, all cultures enslaved, all cultures came and conquered, all cultures did this or that. Can you speak to the whole idea of justification and why, one, the situation is different than some of those instances that they bring up, and two, in a sort of way, why justification doesn't even matter because what's wrong is wrong? Yeah. So this is a very much a, in the, the work of my colleague uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, mm -hmm. major figure in, uh, in the study of uh, um, uh, uh, race in sociology. And Eduardo, in his book uh, called Racism Without Races, um, and it's got the, the subtitle is um, Colorblind Racism and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in the United States. And Eduardo very much argues that before civil rights legislation, for example, you had so uh, the language that whites used was so much hate, the N-word, uh, and just the, the whole notion of... Um, uh, calling people of color by derogatory names uh, uh, in, uh, imaginable. And then civil rights legislation comes about, and then all of a sudden there's a change in the dynamics of, uh, of race talk. Uh, and so that 
he suggests that whites all of a sudden became more subtle in the way that they talked about race and they developed strategies that were used to talk about blacks, talk about Latinos, people of color, without using those words. So uh, there were the code words, for example, central city, inner city, and things like that that were used. But uh, uh, Eduardo also talks about the, the, way, the way that whites uh, developed strategies then to try to justify this, uh, this inequality. And one of those is the whole thing with uh, minimization. Okay, so that uh, it ha and uh, the the narrative is something along the lines of as you, as you mentioned, um, we all our ancestors all suffered, our ancestors all experienced discrimination. Where uh, if I was a white person, that my ancestors came from Europe, they came here, they 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 uh, experienced a lot of discrimination. Uh, they were called the X, Y, and Z kind of names and so forth, uh, so, uh, but they made it through their own bootstraps, they pull themselves by their own bootstraps and so forth. Uh, or the other thing is that people who are complaining, people of color who are complaining, they have a chip on their shoulder. Uh, and uh, therefore, if they only uh, got busy and less complaining, they would be far ahead. So those are kind of the arguments that you see in the strategies that, that, uh, that take place. And a lot of this, I think, has to do with people talking about individual characteristics as opposed to structural, bigger, mm. uh, bigger uh, kind of um, um, uh, um, bigger kind of explanations and so forth. And for long in the study of race in, in the United States, uh, the focus was very much on, uh, on individuals. So whites would say, well, if uh, with uh, Latinos, if they only learned how to speak English, uh, or that they only uh, uh, went to college and so forth. So all having to do with, uh, with individual characteristics and nothing having to do with a bigger structural, uh, uh, this kind of codification of race, for example, in our laws, in our policies and so forth, that has kept uh, discrimination, racial discrimination, racial disparities alive and well for, for many, uh, many, many generations. Uh, and I think that that's, that continues to be the case where in many respects, uh, whites have been in denial with, uh, with respect to these deep structural racist kind of um, 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 elements and parts of the, the, the story of, uh, of, the, of the United States that has served to privilege whites and keep people of color, African-Americans in particular, Latinos, Native Americans, particularly way at the bottom that we see uh, decade after decade where the Census Bureau collects information on uh, socioeconomic status and so forth. And you find decade after decade, century after century, where people of color continue to occupy that bottom of the, uh, of the stratification system. Yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting, that whole idea of, of blinders, even from the perspective of the white community that I grew up in, because that two steps forward, one step back kind of mentality creates this culture where it it's okay what's going on, we're trying to get better. Um, and, and you're taught these things are the way that the world works, and that justification system is even taught to white children that then grow up in a bubble town like a suburb. One of the things that I got to realize uh, growing up was a lot of these stereotypes exist because there is no exposure to any other culture. And you're told things about a certain group of people, and because you have no exposure 
to what that group of people is actually like, it's hard to break out of that. So, you know, something that I would encourage our white listeners, especially those that are struggling with this topic right now, is to go out and gain exposure. Dr. Science, what does privilege look like today and how are communities of color specifically suffering at the hands of systemic injustice? So I, I think in terms of uh, <clears throat> white privilege has really not changed that much. I mean, mm. it, that existed way back when, uh, still exists today. It, uh, perhaps as, as Bonilla Silva talks about, that there has, has become more sophisticated in terms of the justification and things like mm. that that has taken place. But I think that one of the changes that we've seen is that uh, probably I'd say in in the social sciences, particularly in sociology, was probably in the 1990s or so that we began to see kind of a, a change in the way that we were studying race from the focus being on, on people of color and what it is about people of color that are doing wrong or whatever the case may be that mm-hmm. haven't been integrated. And then the focus became much more on whiteness, for example, being white. And that's really where you see the uh, the term white privilege comes about. Uh, the, the, a lot of the, the lingo, uh, the concepts, white fragility, uh, all these kind of concepts that really when, when the, the focus became that, uh, it brought a lot more attention and it brought it out into the open. And I think that even though that people that we're not studying race, for example, for, for a living. Uh, and even in some ways, scholars uh, weren't looking at things, at these concepts like white privilege and so forth, but it gave the concept and it brought it out into, into the open. Uh, and I think that that has been something that is, uh, that is very important, where it begins looking at what privileges whites gain and uh, and some of the the uh, information uh, or the perspectives that come out of sociology is that in many respects, those people that are the overt racists that are out there, uh, yes, they are very dangerous and they keep the, the racism going, but what really gives power to racism and continuing it to perpetuate is the common people who are not uh, uh, not using racial slurs, uh, who are not out there uh, um, protesting against people of color, but people who are gaining benefits from the system and are standing by and letting the the, in the title of his book, uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva talks about uh, racism without racists, very much, much providing that analogy that racism is carried on, is perpetuated, not necessarily by people who say I'm racist, but by everyday people who are uh, uh, gaining advantage of the system because of their race, of the color of their skin and so forth. And they're standing by and letting things perpetuate. And that becomes very powerful because it, uh, it gives the impression that uh, there are a few bad apples, a few bad apples, just like the cops now, a few bad apples, but you have all these other ones that are good. But it has to do a lot with the way the system is built uh, and the, the structures and so forth and who's benefiting and so forth and who's standing by and let, letting things uh, perpetuate and, and so forth. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is Rosalie Aguilar, Project Coordinator of Salud America. As an organization, our mission is to help create a culture of health equity for Latinos. We work toward this goal through countless hours of research, writing, editing, and producing. If you believe in what we're doing and want to support that work, please consider donating to our cause at salud.to backslash donate. Thank you. Hi, this is Rebecca Jones, Assistant Director of the Institute for Health Promotion Research. Our organization serves as the research powerhouse that fuels Salud America's content. Here at the IHPR, we investigate the current state of health inequities in America and how that impacts the Latino community. Our research investigates cancer, chronic disease, and other health disparities among Latinos in South Texas and beyond. To learn more about the IHPR and our work, visit salud.to backslash IHPR. Thanks. No, I think you made a very important point, which has kind of uh, been the discussion. I mean, some people, uh, a lot of scholars and authors tried bringing this point, I think around the 80s and 90s, but that point of it's not the people wearing hoods and burning crosses on people's lawns. And uh, I mean, while those people have always been very powerful, still, I mean, it's the silent majority that has given it power since even when slavery was still legal. It's that silent majority of people who may not agree with the fact that their neighbor has 400 slaves, but they're still going to have coffee and dinner with them and never discuss it ever, uh, which is the case now, you know, um, where, I mean, you may not even know anyone who's in the KKK, but by never discussing anything having to do with the other side of life or what it is that your wealth sits atop of, it's... That that is the only thing that will keep this going for the rest of forever, you know. Um, and by doing the reverse of that behavior, you can change everything. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting because the whole idea of the the bystander effect really came into play. This kind of like justification of allowing racism to become so out in the open was there were all of these little shield issues that people used as an excuse. I think that one way that this situation has at least been remarkable to me is the amount of folks that have come out and say have said what you've said is that I can no longer deny that that racism um, is alive and well and persistent in America. And so as some of these people are coming out and say that, what can whites in America do to educate themselves on this issue and what actions can they take to make sure that in five years another unarmed black man isn't killed and we're seeing this same kind of outcry for fair treatment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a very good question in terms of uh, kind of uh, the nuts and bolts about, and, and in some ways I think it's uh, um, trying to shed, shed that kind of white privilege, again, that white privilege, then the one is a recognition that whites have this, these benefits that, that, uh, that have come their way that people of color uh, don't have. Um, and we see kind of the, the double standards that exist, the protesters, the white protesters that were spewing venom and including spit and so, and so forth in the pa- middle of the pandemic uh, with guns in the Capitol <laughs> that you 
allow them to uh, to uh, occupy uh, George Floyd, uh, a person in his mid 40s, uh, and then is killed uh, ar armless. And uh, so you have those kind of things. Uh, so in, in in many respects, it's knowing that the recognition that there is that privilege that is unearned, that simply comes with people's race, the color of their skin and so forth, and then going the next step, and that is how can I then live in a more equitable world where I, white person, for example, would be, uh, am I going to be the equal, for example, for a person of color, that we're going to be balanced and we're all equal and so forth. And that when when we get benefits that we say, why am I getting these benefits when people of color aren't getting those, those benefits and, and so forth. And it's one in terms of people of color holding uh, whites accountable for the actions that they've taken, which have been the positive steps and trying to improve race relations and uh, and pronounce that black lives matter and that uh, we need to change the way the system has been working. Uh, and also that whites themselves uh, are holding other whites accountable. Uh, and there and uh, there is also, as we saw the, the white studies that have been taking place and so, so forth, there are whites who are allies, who have been allies uh, and one of the big messages has always been from whites that are committed to make the world better and so forth, that they've been in this battle the last two, three decades, has been, it's not enough to say, I'm not a racist, but you have to go the extra step and become an anti-racist, where you call racism out, you call uh, people out that are being racist and, and so forth, because that is only, that is a way that we're not going to be these bystanders and that is going to let the system perpetuate. And those are the things. That, uh, and I think in terms of um, um, books and so forth, the work of uh, uh, Tenasi um, uh, uh, Coates and, and so forth, uh, his book uh, Between the World and Me, uh, the work of Ibram uh, X. Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist, the work of uh, Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow in terms of how the system, the criminal justice system uh, was used to create the new Jim Crow in terms of the incarceration of African-American, particularly African-American men uh, that went from a minority in prisons in the 1960s and 1970s in terms of being the majority in, in prisons in the 1980s and the way that it destroyed lives. Uh, the way it has it destroyed lives, destroyed futures, destroyed families, and so forth. And we continue to see that same destruction uh, um, um, carrying out when there is the, the, uh, the, the uh, white racial uh, privilege, when there are the structural uh, disparities, the structural racism that continue to perpetuate those, uh, those inequalities, uh, how many children uh, the, the world of children that has been lost because of uh, uh, their futures, lost because of, uh, of, uh, of uh, this structural racism. Uh, George Floyd, when he was an eight-year-old child, uh, uh, his teacher um, uh, had his, um, his little essay that he had written and the picture that he has drawn when uh, she, a teacher for 35, 40 years, would regularly ask her students, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
Uh, George Floyd said he wanted to be on the Supreme Court, that he wanted to be a Supreme Court justice and so forth. Imagine that dream here he had, and then the, the, the realities of structural racism and lowering those expectations that people have, creating barriers and so forth. And the teacher acknowledges, how was I to know that at that point, this eight-year-old child that had these beautiful dreams about what he wanted to do with his life, all of a sudden, 38 years later, he's being crushed to death, his neck is being crushed to death by a police guy uh, and killing those dreams that, uh, that he had. It's all of these things in terms of, uh, and in many respects, uh, when there have been the kind of the arguments, how do we go try to improve things and so forth? Uh, and the politics since the 1990s, it's always been there, but the, the politics have gotten uh, from the 1980s and so forth, where, we, where we've seen growing inequality, growing, uh, growing amounts of wealth and income among the haves, and less and less and less among the have-nots starting with the Reagan administration and so forth, and it has been just getting perpetuating and becoming much, much worse and worse and worse, particularly for people of color. And those arguments have been always like, leave emotions out of it, is kind of, don't talk about, don't talk about that, talk about how uh, it is the costs and benefits and so forth, all in economic terms, all in these kind of uh, unhuman, dehuman, uh, kind of terms, and we need to get back to these kind of human kind of emotions that uh, that when we're talking about uh, the killing that we have of dreams of people of color, of color and so forth, uh, that these are very very hurtful and they have major consequences for the future of uh, of uh, individuals, the future of their communities, the future of their families, and the future. Of, uh, of the country as well. Could you address a concern that I hear a lot, especially among privileged folks, those that have made their way out of a hard situation, an example being a white male who came from an impoverished background and was able to, in the words that I've heard before, work their way through the system to success and abundance. Can you address how that individuals still had privileges that helped them get to where they are and how people of color do not have those same opportunities? When we look at um, concentrated poverty, uh, the um, sociologists, uh, economists, demographers, and so forth talk about um, 20% or so poverty rates and so forth. And what populations do you have concentrated in these areas? Uh, that are high concentration poverty areas. And you see people of color are much, much more likely to be concentrated in these areas, segregated in very high level poverty kind of communities, poverty areas and so forth, where they're really cut off in many respects from the opportunity structures of our communities, of our countries uh, and, and of our society. Uh, we can think of, um, of uh, school, the school systems and the unequal uh, funding of, uh, of education. If you're uh, uh, in, uh, uh, on the, the, the west side of your in Alamo Heights and so forth, wherever the case may be, and the unequal funding of education, uh, the, the kinds of job opportunities exist. Uh, being in areas that have access to parks, for example, uh, 
to uh, good quality food and so forth, not living in, in, uh, in food deserts. And we see that for people of color that are poor, they're more likely to be concentrated in these areas where, where they're cut off from the opportunity structure. For whites, on the other hand, the white poor, you have much less segregation in these kinds of, uh, of communities. Sure, you, that you have whites that grow up poor, for example, but they're not caught in those segregated kind of areas that they're as strongly cut off from the opportunity structure as you have with black communities, Latino communities, Native American communities, and, and so forth. Uh, and that I think is, is, uh, is important not to, to denounce that, uh, that the person uh, who made it out of white poverty, et cetera, uh, shouldn't have or anything like that. It's uh, answering the question and again, yeah. to context in terms of, uh, of how much more difficult it is for people of color uh, that, uh, that you're not only poor, but you're also poor person of color and you're also poor person of color that is living in very high concentrated areas of, uh, of poverty. Mm. That, uh, that make it much more difficult to to come out of uh, of that. Yeah. So not only a uh, so not only are you living in a heavily concentrated area of poverty, but that lack of opportunity, that ac- that lack of uh, access to resources, is really what separates the two. And then you have uh, then you have the way the school systems mm. uh, play to the extent to which uh, we know for children of color for long it has been that. Uh, that you have a racist teacher there or someone who who looks down, has prejudices and so forth, and has an African-American or Latino kid and so forth. And to what extent are they going to give them a benefit of the doubt, for example, when they're having mm-hmm. a bad day or so forth? Or are they going to uh, label them from the start as people who are up to no good, that they're going to end up in prison or uh, maybe they'll get a high school education and so forth and those kind of things that also play out in terms of, uh, of uh, the inequality that uh, takes place in the K through 12 system. Thank you to Dr. Sines for joining us in this discussion. To find out more about him and his work, please visit this episode's webpage at salud.to slash saludtalks. Salute Talks is produced by Tenoch Aztecatl, Josh McCormick, and the media team at Salute America. It is executive produced by Dr. Amelie Ramirez. The music heard on this podcast is produced by Bonus Points. Find Salute America online at salute-america.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other social platforms at Salute America. Watch our award-winning videos on YouTube by visiting salute.to slash video. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and as always, we hope you enjoyed.